Welcome to the PhD Talk podcast. I'm Eva Lanza, a professor in civil engineering and blogger on the side. And I am Sarah Cameron, PhD student and work in organizational psychology. In this podcast, we talk about PhD research and interview current PhD candidates, as well as those who work closely with them. We hope you'll stick around. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the PG Talk podcast. This is episode 66 and today we will talk about the literature review. Literature review is often a challenge for many starting PhD students and since Sarah recently worked on her proposal for which she also reviewed part of the literature, I thought it was a um, a, a good moment to question Sarah on how she went about reading the literature. So without much further introduction, Sarah, can you tell us how you carried out the literature review for the proposal that you recently submitted? Yeah, um, I'll preface this by saying that I by no means think this is necessarily the best approach. This is just um, what uh, what I ended up doing. And I'm sure that, mm-hmm. you know, as I um, repeat this process, that it will get hopefully Uh, more refined over time. I would say the first thing I started with was just looking at meta-analyses. So in the proposal that I submitted, I was really trying to combine two streams of research. So the first on this concept called empathic accuracy, uh, and then the second on emotional intelligence. And so I really tried to focus my first maybe, I don't know, week or so just on looking at the meta-analyses in those two areas. Uh, And then it was just a process of getting uh, a little bit more granular of, okay, which articles are using the similar similar methods that I would be using, um, because, you know, certainly with an emotional intelligence, there's a variety of different measures. And so it was I could weed out maybe half of the articles that are published um, solely because they're using measures that uh, that we won't be using. And, yeah, just getting more and more granular and specific as time went on. And eventually, and, you know, trying to find articles also that are making similar links that I'll be making between um, these these two concepts. And I mean, there aren't very many studies that have been done that look at these two concepts. So, um, you know, there, there wasn't actually so much reading to do in that regard. But yeah, I'd say from, from a broad perspective, starting with a meta-analysis and looking at what future research directions are proposed there and then getting more specific as time went on. Well, of course, also being conscious of the outlets that I would hopefully one day be publishing in. And so maybe giving those articles published in those journals a little bit more um, precedence than um, in others. When it comes down to the practical side of things, how did you find the papers to read And did your supervisor say, here are some good references, or did you start to search yourself? And how did you go about that? I would say most things I I did myself, primarily Google Scholar. Um, For preprints, there's also, um, at least within the uh, psychology space, there's Sci-Archive. Um, so that's a good space for preprints. Uh, even Twitter, I found, can be helpful for especially new articles coming out. And then I would also look at, for different journals that I know I'm interested in, looking at what are their most cited papers, their most downloaded papers, and then just new ones coming out. Um, to, I think there's maybe, say, like four or five different journals that um, people in our field are 
really um, publishing in or trying to publish in quite frequently and reading frequently. And so I'm always trying to keep a bit of a pulse on what's being published in those journals. And then I think also it just happens naturally, right, that you're talking to people about your research and they're referencing articles and, you know, hopefully I've read them, but not always. And so I'm jotting down um, the author's name and then frantically searching for them after the meeting. But I think it would generally start with Google Scholar um, for the uh, first steps and then slowly you know as I get more comfortable with um, um, or get you know a bit of sense of context for the for the field then getting more specific and just a curiosity question since most of the literature review you did remotely and from home how did you or how does your university have library access at distance is it true um, remote login to desktop at university or with a remote login through the library itself? They So they do have a remote login through the library. Uh, it doesn't always work. And there are some major journals where they don't have access to the papers, which is uh, a bit surprising. And so often we have a Teams chat amongst all the PhD students in our department, which is only I don't know, fewer than 10 students. Um, and so oftentimes people are asking, oh, does somebody have access to this paper? Um, because of course there's, you know, you can access it through your university's library, but there's always other ways to access papers. Um, sure. The legality of which can be questioned <laughs> at times um, because, you know, sometimes there's a paper that you really need to read that um, your university doesn't give you access to. And so, um Yeah, we're often within the department helping one another. Um, and I actually have also, this is more to, I would say, with book chapters where uh, maybe the university would have a physical copy of the book. Um, I've also reached out to the authors themselves to see if they have digital copies they can share rather than waiting for the university to mail me the book. Um, although when I was writing my master's thesis during COVID, I did have, I did do that actually, that I reached out to the library. This was at the VU in Amsterdam at the time, and they mailed me a physical copy of the book. But I mean, that's not exactly um, the most seamless process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the reason why I was curious about this is that I've been using various options for to remotely connect to the Theodelt library and Some of them are more stable than others. So yeah, it's, it's, it's still something that technologically seems to be in its infancy and it can be improved. And yeah. So my, what mostly works for me is that actually I use um, a VPN connection, like not a remote desktop connection, but a VPN connection that it thinks that that my IP address shows up as on the Theodelt campus. And then I seem to have much better access than when I do the remote login through the library or try to do remote desktop, which tends to be a little bit slow. So I just use a, a VPN bridge to. Yeah, I should try that because mostly, I mean, I'm not sure if this is a good thing or a bad thing, but if I, I do a, I will first try to just access it remotely through the university's library. And then the minute I can't do that, I just use these websites that um, give you access to the articles, probably not legally. Um, but <laughs> yeah, I don't know the, I haven't really delved into the ethics of it, but um, yeah, it's, 
That's actually an interesting thing to think about. And I guess also on ResearchGate, um, I'm just dipping my toes into the water of ResearchGate now um, mm-hmm. because, you know, before in my professional networking, when I was working in industry, it always just happened over LinkedIn. Um, but I guess in academic circles, ResearchGate is more relevant, but that's also been a good way for me to access papers. Um, so I guess a multitude of, uh, of avenues. Yeah, I was going to to mention that indeed uh, ResearchGate and or just sending an email to the authors if you know that the paper is not from 20 years ago, that there is a good chance that the author is still working at the same institution, then yeah, most times they will just happily share the article with you. Yeah. And I think as I put myself in the shoes of somebody who would get an email like that, I would think it would be very flattering that somebody's going out of their mm-hmm. way to contact you to... Um, about your work so um, yeah when I was a master's student I always felt somehow yeah like I would be bothering them or something but I think uh, it would actually be quite a nice email to receive I would imagine yeah certainly and switching topics here a little bit but keeping on the practical side of things what are you using to manage your references are you using any um, reference management software are you still looking into that yeah, so when I wrote my master's thesis, I used Zotero, um, and by the end of that, I was totally fed up with Zotero, and so when I started the PhD, I had this brilliant plan to use Mendeley and to organize everything by topic, and I would read an article, and I would make notes about it afterwards so that I would, uh, you know, hopefully remember more of what I'd read in the article, and I would tag articles by the theme as it related to my research. So each article that I read would have a few different hashtags so I could track things. And I think that lasted for about two weeks, maybe. (laughs) And now I do still upload everything into Mendeley because when I'm just, when I'm writing, it's easier to have the in-text citations already formatted for you, but I don't do any of the tracking. I maybe highlight a little bit just as I'm reading, but I don't make any notes. I don't add things to certain categories because I just... I got found that to be too time consuming. And so who knows, maybe I will come to rue the day that I, you know, gave up on that system. But um, yeah, I didn't, I didn't last very long with that. You mentioned here taking notes and I was wondering what's your process of digesting the content of a paper that you read? Do you take notes on the paper? Do you read on paper? Do you read digitally? Do you annotate? Do you write something in a separate file? How do you, how do you read? (laughs) So uh, this is also something that I'm kind of figuring out myself now that when I was in my master's, I would print out every article that was assigned for class and read it and highlight it. And then afterwards I would make a one page summary by hand of what was included in the article. But that was largely because we also had exams. And so I really needed to be able to Mm -hmm. regurgitate that information now in the PhD, it's uh, you know more important that I just understand on a conceptual level what methods they were using, what the results were, this sort of thing. And so when I'm if I do take notes, it's much higher level, I would say. And I find more that there's articles that I'll maybe flag for myself to come back to, or that I really want to look into their specific results again when I'm I don't know. Uh, you know, designing my own, you know, writing my own lab protocol or so. Not that I need to really jot down 
okay, what were the key takeaways? What theories were they using? That sort of thing. Because at this point, I've read so much that, um, yeah, I it's I all have it committed to memory at this point, or I understand it so intimately myself that I don't need to necessarily take notes about it. And then the next step, of course, after reading all these papers is bringing everything together in the literature review. So could you tell us a bit about how you then, uh, after reading or while reading the papers, um, bring the information together into a digested form? Yeah, um, not easily, I will say, <laughs> um, particularly when trying to integrate two different uh, research streams. Um, I find that doesn't, it's, it's never a clear process for me. I find I'm still a bit more of a kind of pen and paper kind of person when I'm making just a broader outline of how I'm going to integrate everything and what, you know, how I want to position the articles or the research um, against itself. Um, so I generally start with a rough outline by, you know, with pen and paper and trying to also, yeah, of course, when you're writing, whether it's a proposal or a paper, what have you, you need to come up with your own structure for uh, uh, of how you're going to present the literature and so that's generally something that I would try to start with and then maybe putting in just by bullet points a few of the key articles that I'm going to reference here or there um, before I flesh it out into full uh, sentences but that's also a process where it's writing and rewriting and going back to the literature um, and editing and yeah it's never Uh, smooth. And reflecting back on the process that you went through, what did you learn from the process of, of doing the literature review for this research? That's a good question. I think the way I went about it was, for the most part, it was okay. Maybe I, I have an advantage here that I would say I'm generally a pretty fast reader. You know, English is also my mother tongue. So I know that there's some, uh, yeah, maybe it comes more easily to me in that way. I think when I was actually writing the proposal and writing the literature review, I think I wish that I'd started the writing earlier. I think I spent so much time just reading and then I would feel like I wasn't making any progress because I didn't have any words on the page. And so I think psychologically I found that pretty challenging because I sort of felt like I was falling behind. And then in reality, once I actually did start writing, it went quite quickly because I'd read so much. And so maybe it wouldn't be, maybe I wouldn't even do anything differently, but just tell myself it's okay what you're doing now, just relax, you'll be fine. This is separate, but what I find now that I'm kind of just in the planning stage of designing some of the lab studies I'll do is, you know, because I'm not, I don't have any specific papers that I'm writing right now, it's just making sure that I'm keeping up with the reading. And so I need to put in place some sort of structure where I say, okay, I'm going to read X many articles per week or per day uh, so that I don't fall behind because looking back over the last you know month or so where I was a bit busier with teaching and just other responsibilities the reading has fallen behind a bit and so that's something that I'm conscious of going forward and you you mentioned that for your masters you printed every paper and highlighted and read them now that you're thinking of keeping up with the literature will you be reading more digitally or is that something that you're still looking into 
Yeah, I, I'm actually curious to hear what your approach is. Right now I'm just reading on Mendeley because then I can highlight and take notes if I want to. I also have colleagues who use uh, their iPads for reading and then maybe you have the best of both worlds that you can still use a pen and it feels a little bit more. I enjoy the tactile feeling of holding actual paper and uh, for whatever reason that felt lower barrier to me Um, and it's a little bit more portable as well. Um, But yeah, I'm curious actually what your approach is. Yeah, that's a, it's an interesting point that you raised there. And probably you, from your background, have maybe a better understanding that, of that. But I feel that when I review and comment on the work of my students, I have a different way of commenting and looking at the work when it's printed out or when it's like, the PDF on, on the tablet and I use the, the pencil as compared to when I go into the Word file and use the track changes and start to, you know, edit commas and whatnot mm. in there. It feels like I have a better overview of the entire ID when I have the paper in my hands or the iPad mm. in my hands. That's uh, And, and so I, I do try to really, when I have to uh, comment on work of my PhD students to at least for the first round of, of comments, I try to have it either printed and then scan it or after the scanner has eaten so many pages, I, I usually do it on, on the iPad, but with the, with a pen. Um, so it kind of feels the same as marking up on paper. And then only in the second or third round, I will go into the word file with the track changes and start to you know, edit the actual sentences and all that. Hmm. And it does feel, for some reason, it does feel quite different to me. Yeah, interesting. I think maybe that will, um, yeah, inspire me to to go the tablet route because I can imagine as well that it's maybe just something you toss in your bag and then if, I don't know, I, you know, want to go sit in a cafe somewhere and just read some articles for the afternoon, that would yeah, it would feel a little bit lower barrier or when I'm on the train. Um, yeah, so maybe that'll be something for me to look into. I do sort of sometimes cringe when I look back at all the trees <laughs> that I destroyed printing out every article for uh, the courses in my master's. But I somehow, yeah, I was pretty confident that I would digest the information more easily if it was on paper. I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not familiar with the literature. If there is literature on that, uh, I should look into it. So. Yeah, maybe uh, the tablet route is a happy medium there. So for the almost two years that I worked from home uh, during the pandemic, I we have a printer at home, but it doesn't communicate very well with my laptop. So essentially, I wasn't able to print much. So I did find that once I got the tablet, which I ended up getting for teaching so that I can annotate while teaching and write formulas because otherwise I was like typing them into the whiteboard and typing out mathematical formulas with the zoom whiteboard is very basic so so I ended up getting a tablet for teaching but then I also started to use it for for reading and I to me it, it gives more the same reading experience as reading a printout than reading on the screen Okay. The computer screen, the desktop screen, or the laptop screen. That's good to know. And do you use a reference manager? 
I use EndNote, so okay. a, a bit more old school, perhaps. Um, yeah. But when I started my PhD, that was the software that came pre-installed on our computers. And one of the, at that time, almost finished PhD students said, uh, you know, don't keep your references in Excel, which at that time was still something that people were doing. Uh, <laughs> now I sound very old. Uh, she said, <laughs> use that endnote and i i think i was already a few months or even a year into my PhD. i already had like a lot of articles that i had read so it, it took it it took me um i would say an entire afternoon entering all those articles into endnote because at that time the downloading the dot ris file or the dot whatever file it is for Mendeley so that it ends up automatically didn't exist yet. So it had to manually like, hmm. use it as a, as a database at the time. Um, but that, that certainly was a, uh, a good step forward. Because mm, mm. before that, I, was, I wasn't even using Excel. I was using a Word file in which I would type out manually <laughs> the references that I had read. Wow. That's so time consuming. It does make me think like I think now of how I complain about having to email the university to ask them to mail me a book to my house of when, you know, my uh, people of different generations were at university and having to go physically to the library and comb through uh, mm -hmm. these actual journals that, yeah. Yeah, it, it's, it's not that long ago because I remember for my master thesis, uh, at Georgia Tech, we did have access through the library, but only only articles of the last 10 or 15 years were available digitally. And some of the older articles, you had to go physically to the library, make copies of it, and put it back in place. Yeah. So I spent a lot of time copying things. Yeah. And even at the beginning of my PhD, I remember of one of the journals they had not digitized yet the say the articles from the 80s and before um so those also at that time i could already request a librarian to scan it for me and send it to me but they were not mm. at that time they were not available digitally yet by mm. now it's all digitized but yeah interesting it's just it would be so time consuming because i also think now of how many articles i you know read the abstract of and think okay maybe this will be relevant <laughs> and then i get a few pages in and think okay no they're actually using a very different methodology um or a totally different theoretical framework i don't need to continue reading um and if that's something that you've physically gone to the library just to you know and pulled off the shelf that's so much it's a lot more effort than yeah. just closing a tab it's also Sometimes I do miss it, like yeah, like it, it has something relaxing about it. Just you know, mm. being in the library and copying and just at a bit of a slower pace. Yeah, and I remember that my sister, when she uh, was finishing her studies, if I recall well, she was keeping her references on flashcards in one of these, you know, these things that had the the turning thing, like how oh, people yeah. used to keep contact cards as well she she had i think she had flashcards or something with her references and notes on the back wow i guess in some ways maybe it's a little bit more intentional as well because when you're physically taking a journal off the shelf and reading a specific article you can't be focused on so many different things whereas now 
I'll be reading one article, but I have my team's conversation with my colleague open at the same time. And mm-hmm. there's 20 other articles open and other tabs um, that are somehow still, you know, distracting me. Like I'm always thinking about the next thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I can see that there's actually maybe some advantages as well too, even if it is more time consuming. Now switching topics here a little bit. Um, one of the things that I wanted to address today is as well, um, how to write a literature review. And you mentioned that, if I understood it well, that you structured uh, your literature review around the concepts from the two streams of research that you looked at, if I understood it correctly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say that's a process that I still struggle with. Um, also because I think, I guess, it, it being conscious of who your audience is. Um, so when I was writing, you know, my master's thesis, it, it was also something I struggled with of, you know, okay, I'm, I need to give enough context on what is known in the field about this specific concept. But uh, you're also writing, well, in this case, I was writing from a supervisor who is very well versed in this topic. And so how do you balance giving enough information, but not too much information? Um, because, you know, in my master's thesis, I was researching leader member exchange, which is an incredibly well-researched topic um, in IO psychology. And so you could, uh, yeah, there, it, it was very a difficult process of figuring out what is the most yeah. important, what are the most important things to write about and what are the most important findings to highlight. Mm-hmm. Um, and to be honest, I don't know that I've necessarily honed that process. Um, I found for the grant proposal, uh that was a little bit easier maybe just because i'd been through the process once before um but also because i knew that i was writing it with the angle of convincing somebody to give us funding and so that gave a little bit more clarity of what to highlight and not to highlight because you know what the funding agency they're pretty explicit about what they are interested in and what's important to them and um so and, and i mean in their case it was Um, research that leads to a practical intervention. And so I knew that when I was writing the literature review, I'm going to highlight the research um, that has a relevance, that is relevant to practice. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, of course, you have to give some kind of theoretical background as well. But I found that that having a bit of a narrower scope made the writing much easier. Certainly. And I'm glad that you brought up this challenge that you had in your master thesis, as it's something that I do see with a lot of master students, that writing a literature review that hits the sweet spot on really providing enough information for what is coming in the next chapters Mm -hmm. is really a struggle for a lot of master students. Sometimes we get literature review chapters of 50 pages, and it's just for the reader, and as well as for the, the supervisor. It is a lot to get through. And yeah. in other cases, we get a literature review of eight pages just on one topic and not really giving the bread and depth that you need then for the next chapters. So the one exercise that I ask my students to go through is for everything that they, especially it's the ones that come up with the 50-page the literature reviews, is to ask them, okay, scratch out everything that is not that you're not going to need in the next chapters and that does not answer your research question 
which mm-hmm. hopefully what comes in the next chapters answers your research question. So the two of them are, are very much interrelated. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess something as well that I struggle with, and maybe this is because you know, when I was doing my bachelor's degree, I did, uh, it was a joint a double major in psychology where all of our training was, it was kind of multiple choice exams and a lot of memorization. And then I also studied or had a, the double, the other double degree was with English literature. And so there your writing is always very argumentative. And sometimes what I struggle with with a, a literature review is it's exactly that it's a review. It's not necessarily putting a spin on it or arguing for one thing or the other. It's just more providing a summary. Um, and for whatever reason, I find that to be a little bit confusing um, or just, yeah, maybe it's a struggle mm-hmm. of to know how much is enough and yeah. what is too much. And I guess um, um, another thing that it is not is an annotated bibliography. And that I do mm-hmm. see as a reviewer, for example, of papers, I sometimes see that people like really write their literature review as an annotated bibliography. And then it just doesn't bring the concepts together. It's uh, yeah, alter A and B in the year twenty. Uh, 2020 said this and tested this and then the other ones did this and the other ones did this and then as a reader I'm left with okay but that's all nice and interesting but I'm looking for the review of the literature and the digested form of this information and that is also something that is often lacking yeah and when you think of a literature review is the purpose then just to contextualize and provide enough you know, background information for the research question? Or is that? I would say it's there's, there's a step between the literature review and the research question, which is really identifying the gap in the literature. So it would be mm-hmm. reviewing the literature yeah. and the concepts that are available. From there, identifying, okay, this is the gap. And in my field, that's often very practical as in, we need to know more about what happens if you put these types of trucks on this type of bridge, will it collapse or not? Uh, yeah. And then frame the research question perhaps uh, at a deeper level that can address that gap within a certain framework. Yeah. Yeah. I think for myself, maybe again, it's because of this training from studying English literature and writing English essays is the arguing for why the gap is an important one to be filled comes very naturally to me, but finding the sweet spot of kind of laying up that gap or explaining the context around that gap or that creates that gap is something that uh, I find more challenging. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think it's uh, certainly for many people a challenge, for many researchers a challenge, because it's also something that It's, it's not anything that you have training for, and it's rare that there's training provided for it, uh, perhaps also because there may be really uh, subtle differences between fields on how to approach it, how to build up to that gap in a way that resonates with the reader. Um, so to really say, okay, here is a cookbook recipe of how you write a literature review, I... I wouldn't know how to to describe it. Yeah. No, and it probably depends on, it's going to be different for every topic. 
um, mm -hmm. that you're writing about. And then the other topic that I had here to bring up is really the occasions where one carries out a literature review. And I think it comes at various stages. You've now um, gone through this process as part of a proposal. I was wondering if you, for your thesis, which will be paper-based, if you will have a specific literature review for each paper that you will be writing? That's the plan, yeah. And I, I, I can't imagine another path forward because, yeah, just today I was speaking with my supervisor and so the, you know, we're making plans for data collection and I think with the data that we collect as well, the goal at least is that several papers will be written from one round of data collection, but the angle will be actually quite different. Um, and so out of necessity, there will be a different literature review, mm -hmm. um, yeah, just simply because the research questions we'll be asking will be quite different. Um, and so I think that's also a good reminder for me now to stay on top of my reading so that uh, mm -hmm. once I get into the throes of data collection and I'm very busy with that, um, you know, I don't feel like I'm too far behind, I guess, um, because to be able to have a smooth writing process with a literature review. I know for myself, it takes kind of months of reading and giving myself time to mull it over and uh, yeah, feel like I have somewhat of a direction to go in with the literature review. Um, so it's a good reminder for me. Yeah, what's the other time when one needs a, a literature review would be if you have the uh, long book style dissertation where the literature review is then related or one of the chapters of the thesis. And in our research group in Delft, we do tend to ask our PhD students to either have the literature review as a report in the first year. Um, and we also, now that we have the go, no go meeting after at the end of the first year, the literature review is also an important part of the report for that meeting. So it's uh, um, it's it's something that comes naturally as a milestone in the process that we have. Um, and then the other occasion for digesting the literature, so to speak, would be when one writes a review article and that is, of course, um, I would say a style in itself. You could say that a PhD student technically could write the review article after having uh, done, if it's the, the, the long book style dissertation, if they do the literature review in the first year and they have written the report and they've written their go-no-go -no -go report and potentially maybe even have a draft of the literature review chapter technically, they could write a review article, um, but because a review article is so different from writing a regular research article, it tends to be something that one does after more years of training as a researcher, I would say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do actually sometimes wonder how the process goes when people are writing, yeah, as you say, a review article or a meta-analysis. Of, of course, you can read the methods section of how they find these articles and their criteria for including or excluding them. But um, once they actually get to the more 
especially with a systematic review, where it's a little bit more um, qualitative to be in their approach of how they synthesize just the breadth of information. Um, yeah, I, I would need to pick the brain of some of my colleagues who've been working on systematic reviews recently of <laughs> what that process is like. Certainly, and I uh, want to give a, a quick shout out here to one of the earliest episodes that we, uh, the earliest interviews that we recorded in season one, which was a uh, uh, an interview with Jonathan Guillemot about systematic review. So I'll make sure to link to that episode in the show notes. Mm, that sounds great. That sounds great. And based on what you've been discussing, are there uh, things that I've mentioned that you see that are quite different in your field? Mm, that's a good question. Um, I wonder, I think this is maybe unique to IO psychology, actually. Um, the only thing that I can think that might be different is just that we're really kind of in between two camps because on the one hand, we're oftentimes, I mean, I'm in a psychology department, but many of my colleagues would be in business faculties. And so you're reading more management related articles, but then also oftentimes would publish in pure psychology journals. Um, that are really positioned more towards social psychologists. So that's something that I struggle with as well, of how do I balance those two kind of different worlds? And that's maybe one thing that does feel unique just to the, the field that I'm in. Um, yeah. How about for you? Well, my research is not interdisciplinary, so I'm squarely into the world of concrete structures and the journals of uh, that deal with it are very much set on dealing with, with concrete as a structure. Um, sometimes I would say we do a little bit of adventures into the materials world or we do a, a little step into the statistics world or probabilistics world, but that's about as, uh, as adventurous as we get. So that's uh, actually... Uh, certainly for my fields, it's, uh, it's, it's very squarely set in the uh, structural concrete thinking. Mm, 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 interesting. And in terms of the approach for um, finding articles, is, was that, is your approach similar to what I described? Or Yeah, I, I generally start from Scopus. Uh, instead of mm. Google Scholar, but that's just a, a matter of preference and habit, I would say. Mm -hmm. And then, just as you mentioned, go into the reference section and see what I've missed and and keep going until I find nothing new. And then yeah. uh, perhaps one of the things that I can mention is that sometimes if it's a particular search term that may be very... Um, say steel fibers which can be put into concrete um i may want to do that search term with british spelling and with u.s spelling and find different things um, mm. which is a, a just a small thing and then i guess i also try to see if there are references in other languages that i should explore so I tend to do a search as well in German and uh, where possible, if I find references in French, 
sometimes in Spanish, I will look them up as well. So to mm. potentially search in other languages as well, or in, in Dutch for that matter. Right. And then what would you do if you found articles in these other languages? Are you, do you speak many more languages than I thought you did or would you translate uh, them? Yeah. So the, the languages that I mentioned, I can read the articles. If it's okay. something that I find in Chinese, I will have to ask one of my colleagues to see if it's <laughs> anything that is relevant to us. Right. Okay. But certainly in my field, German is, uh, there's a lot of German technical universities with large labs and they publish in right. German, in German journals. So from that perspective, mm. for me, it's very useful to be able to at least read German. My spoken German is very rudimentary, but I can mm. read it and, and understand and make sense of what happens in the experiments. Right. Oh, interesting. That's never, I think maybe a handful of times I've come across a French article, but I don't think in our field it's really necessary. Like you, the, yeah. the writing would always be in English mm-hmm. um, or more often than not. Um, and with the Scopus versus Google Scholar, is there a, are there like pros and cons that you see? Not really. I think, uh, I think it's just a matter of, of habit. Um, mm. Potentially, you can find more with Google Scholar than with Scopus because Scopus is limited to the journals that it includes, which is not always everything that I'm interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, but essentially, I, the first search engine that I used way back uh, was the Engineering Village, which used to combine Scopus, Compendex, and Inspec. And... Then when I moved to Theodalft, we didn't have access to Engineering Village. So I just thought, okay, well, then most of it is in Scopus. So I'll just look for it there. Yeah. yeah. So it's uh, more a matter of habits. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I know when I'm reading these, yeah, systematic reviews or meta-analyses, they're always looking on PsychNet and these other platforms. But I find the search functionality just more user-friendly on Google Scholar. Mm-hmm. Um and I think also at a certain point, you can once you become familiar with the literature, you can tell if there is an article that is referenced frequently that you haven't read. You can go seek it out yourself. Yeah. Um, and also at a certain point, you'll tell if you can you can get a sense when you are already aware of everything that the author is citing that you probably yeah. have a pretty good grasp of the field. I would say maybe one of the things that I, I don't know if Google Scholar does it because I only use it like for secondary searches. But if I'm exploring a field in which there, or a topic on which there is a lot published, I will start, I will first rank the search results from highest to lowest cited. And Mm -hmm. I will start with the papers that are highest cited. And then I will rank them as well from most recently published to uh, uh, oldest uh, publication date. And I will just uh, check out what is done in the last five years, for example, to make sure that I got the recent developments. And probably for historical purposes, I will also go and and see what the first papers on the topic were to see how it all started. Yeah, yeah, no, similar, I would say. And something else I would say that I do as things get more specific is if I have uh, one, if I found one article that is really getting at the, you know, this 
specific balance between these two concepts that I was trying to bridge, then I would look at um, who else has cited that article and see mm-hmm. how they present the, the dilemma, yeah. if you will, yeah. Um, yeah. and if there's crossover there. Um, even if those articles are, you know, maybe much more recent or are looking at different outcome variables or uh, don't have very many citations, I still find it's helpful to see that, okay, somebody's maybe also been interested in this very niche thing that uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> So this has been episode 66 in which you talked about the literature review based on Sarah's experience in writing the literature review for her research proposal. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and we'll be back next week with more of BG Life. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>